Good morning. Happy New Year. One more year in 2018. I would love for us to read through the Bible together this year. That's why at the kiosk and at the tables at the exit, you're going to find a simple two-sided, one sheet, two sides, simple Bible reading plan that will take you across the Bible. Not every chapter, actually very simple, short, doable reading portions with Scripture memory for the rest of the year. I'd love for us to read the Bible together. If you don't have a set reading plan, join us. If you do already, this is simple and short enough. I think you can incorporate it. Um, you can do it on paper, and there it's also available in apps as well. I'll send you an email later this afternoon to put that in your hands so that we can get started tomorrow in the first day of the year. I'd love for us to do this together and discover what God has to tell us in His Word. For now, I'd like you to take out your bulletin and look on your study sheet and complete the sentence at the top of that sheet. It says, because God loves me, He will. And then there's a question mark. Because God loves me, He will what? How would you complete that sentence? This is not a collaborative project. Don't look in your neighbor's paper. Not a group project where somebody, the one person on the road does all the work and everybody gets the credit, okay? Just think about all the things you've been taught about God, all the things you've read about God and His Word, the Bible, and answer that question. Because God loves me, He will If you got SAT flashbacks, I'm sorry. Okay, got it? All righty. I really had trouble at 9 o'clock because everybody was shouting out the answers at the same time. Let's see if you've had more sleep. Let's see if we can do a little bit better. What did you come up with? Because God loves me, he will what? There we are. I didn't understand a word. I'm sorry. Because God loves me, He will help me to know Him better. Beautiful. Absolutely true. Somebody else? He will lead me. Because God loves me, He will lead me. This side? Because God loves me, He will provide for me. What a wonderful speaking voice that is, whoever, whoever that was. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> it was even more believable because of the way He said it, right? It's great. He will, he will provide for me. Absolutely true all across the Bible. Over here, right-hand section, anybody? Hang on. Somebody said, forgive my sins. Absolutely true. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every wicked thing, it can all be covered because God is faithful. But somebody else, along with, forgive me on this side, somebody else said something really interesting. Because God loves me, He will what? Discipline. He will discipline me. You believe that? That's actually true. Open your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 12. And now you're not popular for having said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews was written to people in the first century 
who were Jewish, hence the name Hebrews. Some of them had put their faith in Jesus, others were right on the threshold. They were enduring social pressure to turn away from Jesus, to go back to the synagogue, to go back to the law of Moses, to go back to the priesthood. And the long argument of the book of Hebrews is, don't do that because Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He has a greater reward for you. It's all designed to tell them to not neglect the salvation that they have been offered in Jesus. If they don't trust in Jesus, nobody else is coming. Nobody else will be able to save them. Them or anybody else. Jesus is the one and he is simply better. And the book is one long sermon. It's written as a sermon telling them how much better Jesus is and above all encouraging them not to quit and not to draw back, but to hang on through the suffering and the persecution they're enduring to hang on to Jesus. That's why it says in verse 6, Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. If God loves you, he will correct you. He will discipline you. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is first century writing, so it's going to speak of sons as a representative term, meaning sons and daughters. But if what it means is, if God receives you as his child, he will correct you. He will discipline you. Now, what does discipline mean? In the New Testament, the term discipline encompasses everything that it takes to educate and train up a child. Everything required to train and educate a child, that's what discipline involves. It's the whole package. It is the whole system. It is the entire effort to grow someone up. Now, let me tell you on the front side, some of you are already uncomfortable with this topic, and we're going to talk about that. But on the very beginning, you need to understand if you truly are a child of God, He is committed as long as you were on this earth before He receives you in glory. He is committed to loving you in every way with everything He has at His disposal. Because He loves you, He will bless you. And He will do all of the probably 30 things that were mentioned across three services out loud as I asked people to complete that sentence. Of all of those things, only two people settled on this one. Because the first thing I associate with love is not discipline, it's not correction. But this passage tells you plainly, if you are God's child, you can expect Him to love you, and because He loves you, He's going to correct you. Here are some truths you can count on while you're going through God's correction, when God is disciplining you. Let's begin in verse 1, Hebrews 12, verse 1. If you notice, we're in chapter 12. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll be reminded that chapter 11 is one of those giant passages that loom like a mountain out of the rest of Scripture. It's the hall of fame of the faith. It's a long list of names, men and women, who served God greatly under tremendous persecution, 
with much to lose, sometimes including their own lives, they had the grace to continue to trust God. And because they trusted God, they did things and received rewards that were absolutely miraculous. After reminding them of their history, he's now going to turn to his discouraged readers and say, you have a great cloud of witnesses around you. These people I've just told you about, whose names you've heard all your lives, who were read out to you when you attended synagogue, they witness to you what a life lived for God looks like. And he's going to take their example to encourage them, and he's especially going to tell them about Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. While you're running patiently, having got rid of things that weigh you down and sin which entangles you and clings closely to you, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, look what Jesus did, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does he mean? He says, you're suffering, but they haven't killed you yet. You have a long line of people who went before you, many of whom actually died trusting God. It's bad for you. It's not that bad yet. Why does he mention Jesus first? Why does he remind them of the cross? And especially, why does he say in the beginning of verse 2, while you run your race patiently, keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Because the first truth you can count on when God is disciplining you is this, and it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus has gone ahead of you. Whatever happens to you in 2018, however God guides you, whatever evil may befall you, However people may treat you, you must remember this. First, Jesus has gone ahead of you. He has marked out the course for you. That's what it says here in the first part of this, in the first part of this reading. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. That means that God knows the course. You're not running randomly. He has set a course for you to run, and you can run it looking ahead to Jesus because Jesus already finished for you. In fact, his path took him through a very difficult place. According to these first two verses, where did Jesus race? Where did Jesus course? Where did his going ahead take him? to the cross. And it says, while Jesus was on the cross, he was doing something specific. Look at the end of verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we read the Bible together, and you will do well to read smaller portions thoughtfully rather than just blaze through portions and check a box. 
If you'll slow down and ask questions of the text and ask God in prayer, what do you mean here and what are you trying to tell me? The Word of God will open up to you with simple questions that you can answer. You can get help if you need it. You can talk to God about it. You can talk to wiser, more experienced believers so that you can help. they can help you understand the Scripture. But this kind of question unlocks Scripture. Here's one. What joy was Jesus looking forward to while he was on the cross? On the one hand, he was, he was certainly looking forward to returning to glory, to be enthroned as the king he never stopped being, right? That's true. Over here came a separate and equally true answer. What was it? Yes, he's looking ahead to the joy of bringing us into the family. He despised the shame. See, the Roman crucifixion was intended. It was brutally calculated to every detail to heap shame and then death on the man who was being crucified. First, you were branded with the worst kind of social stigma so that you would live in infamy so that your name would be despicable, so that you would be proverbially for generations remembered as the worst kind of person shamed in a shame-based culture. And having done that, they killed you. And it says, while Jesus was on the cross, he was despising the shame. In other words, it meant nothing to him. He looked at it with contempt. Not because it wasn't awful, but because he was looking forward to a greater joy. And that joy was obviously returning to heaven. And in the looking down at us, he was looking ahead to the time he could welcome us into God's family and call you. Who at a time in your life wanted nothing to do with God. Who were your own God. Who chose your own path. Call you his beloved son, his beloved daughter. I say this with all due respect because obviously I can never relate, but it must be a little bit like a woman having a baby because a woman having a baby wants nothing to do with the pain. The point of pregnancy is not the pain. It's not the weight gain. It's not the changes in her body. It's not the discomfort that she endures for months and months. And then I've only witnessed it, but what it just looks absolutely agonizing. And then, a lot of women will say, let's do that again. (laughs) Really? You want to go through that again? And what's the point? It's not the pain. What's the point, ladies? It's the baby. In the moment that a baby boy, a baby girl is born healthy into the world, and that little life is cradled in his mother's arms, In that moment, all the pain fades into its proper perspective. It was still painful. It was still excruciating. But oh, so worth it. That's what you meant to Jesus. That was the joy that was set before him. And before he gets down to the business of teaching them in depth, point by point, which is what I'm trying to do in showing you most of chapter 12, what God's discipline is like, the first thing he wants us to know is that we can go through this knowing that God's hand is guided by love, so much so that Jesus has already gone ahead of us. Now look at verse 5. 
Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now this book of Hebrews, soaked in the Hebrew Scriptures, is going to reach back into the Old Testament and quote the Hebrew Scriptures, quote Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. The second truth, when you're being disciplined by God, remember... That means that God loves you. It means that God loves you. Pain is not indicative that God has abandoned you or forgotten you. God loves you. That's the second truth. God loves you and He does everything guided by His love and His faithfulness. If He has brought you into His family by the cost of the life of His Son, Jesus... He is determined to grow you up in His family and everything He does, blessing and mercy and grace and also discipline, reproof and correction, it's all guided by the same thing. God is not erratic. He does not change His mind. He cannot change His mind. He has decided for His own reasons, for His own glory, dependent upon His own character, not yours. And that's much better God has decided to love you. If God decided to love you for you, that'd put you at risk. Can we be honest? Aren't we all pretty unlovable at times? Aren't you glad that God loves you because He is loving? The Puritan Thomas Watson says, you may force God sometimes to punish you, but you'll never have to force Him to love you. That is His nature. God is love, and everything He does is guided and motivated and flows from His love. And chapters, uh, verses 7 and 8, rather, say that it proves, His discipline proves that you're His child. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline. It is for training, in other words. It is for growing up. It is for maturing that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. In other words, when you, God corrects you, he's treating you as his son, as his daughter. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, number three, God's discipline proves that you're his child. My family and, and I have moved around a lot. I moved around quite a bit. I think I was in 14 schools by the time I finished seminary. And then we moved around quite a bit in ministry and as missionaries ourselves. And through all the moving, we had all different kinds of neighbors. One neighborhood in particular, the neighbor kids were awful. And they were little, but I expected to see them on Mexico's Most Wanted any <laughs> time. They were like little little, highly ingenious, very determined predators that just kind of roam through the neighborhood. And I could see pretty much everything these mom, this mom and this dad are failing to do or overdoing, and that's why these kids were as mean as they were. And I took protective measures so that they wouldn't, you know, get after me or my kids. But I never took corrective measures. Why? Not my kids. 
I can see how this is all going south. I can see how bad this is going to be. If this, if this continues, by the time this 10-year-old is 17 years old, we're going to have a real problem on our hands. But I never took him aside. I never grounded him. I never took the keys away or anything like that. He's not my kid. That's the point of these verses. If you believe you're God's child and God never corrects you, that's symptomatic of only one thing. You're not his child at all. If you're in the family, you can expect correction because to leave a child without training, without correction, actually only proves one thing. It proves that that parent hates that child. Scripture says that a person who refuses to discipline his child behaves as if he hated them because he's setting him up for the worst kind of failure. Look at verse 9 now. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Now that single sentence points to the problem that some of you are having with the idea that God would ever discipline you. Here's the issue. You had a bad earthly dad. He was neglectful. He was harsh. Maybe he was even abusive. Maybe he was all of those things, and then he added to it being an absent father. And I've learned through long years of experience as a pastor, people have a wound with their earthly father that they can't help transferring into the way they view and respond to their heavenly father. So any talk, even if it's this plain and this simple and right off the page in your English Bible, because God loves you, he will discipline you. Many Christians responding to that wound with their earthly father will think to themselves, and some have said aloud to me, I just can't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God who is love. And their concept of God is he will only act with mercy. He will only act in positive ways. He would never do anything to cause me any kind of pain. This verse says that is not true. Because he loves you, he will do it all. And you had, the analogy is, you had an earthly dad who corrected you. And you put up with that. You respected that, it says in verse 9. Now here's the question. In the verse 9, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, we had an earthly dad who was limited, who would someday die. When we're corrected by God, we're corrected by the Father of spirits. In other words, we're corrected by the creator of life. We're created by the God who makes people living beings. And because of that, if we respond to his correction, we are going to live. Verse 10, they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And so many sad things can be represented in people's earthly experience by that simple phrase. If your dad wasn't the greatest, he was doing what he thought was best. And it might have been objectively awful. It might have been neglectful, it might have been abusive, but he was doing, in his brokenness, he was doing what he thought was best. 
Your heavenly Father is not subject to any of those limitations. He really is perfect. He's the Father you actually always wanted. When you looked at your earthly father, and every earthly father fails, including the one who's talking to you, the sting of disappointment, of regret, of pain that you felt as your earthly father failed you, that sting is there because God made your heart to be fathered and loved by a perfect father, by him. And it says in verse 10, they disciplined us, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for what reason? For our good, that we may share his holiness. In other words, number four, understand this, remember this. When you're going through correction from God, God will correct you correctly. It's a hard thing. Those, every one of you who's a parent who's made an effort to correct your children know how hard it is. Many of you will know someday how hard it is. Let me talk to the parents for a minute. Have you ever had the situation where your kid is just flat out wrong and you start out to correct them and end up apologizing to them for the way you did it? And that's twice a week at our house, just from my side. They're wrong, we both know it, but I set out and in my humanity, in my frailty, in my sinfulness, in my short-sightedness, I overdo it. I'm harsh, I'm sarcastic, I'm impatient. I'm overly demanding. I over-explain. Man, am I an over-explainer. <laughs> like nine times, yes, Dad, I know, we understand. We get, well, let me just say this as well. And sometimes, like, what? stop talking. He, he gets it. He's actually correcting it. Why can't I stop talking? Is this making sense to any other parents out there? Well, your heavenly Father is not hindered in any way by any of those frailties, by any of that brokenness. Your heavenly, your earthly Father did what He thought was best, and He may have been dead wrong, but your heavenly Father will discipline you for your good, not to get even, not to be vindictive, not because He's insecure, not because He's fearful. Your heavenly Father is perfect. He is perfectly secure. He is perfectly at peace. And he has set his mind on disciplining you, it says at the end of verse 10, for this reason, that you may share his holiness. Now, if I haven't had an amen to this point, I know I will in verse 11. Look ahead in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. True? Absolutely right. No child in the moment feels that this is a good thing. But number five, God is doing all of this for your good. He's disciplining you for your good. And in that moment, number six, you're not going to like it. It says in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. In the history of childhood, has any child ever looked up to his mother and father and say, though this is very painful and I'm very disappointed, I recognize that you were doing this for my good, and you see foolishness in me that will lead me astray and give me even greater consequences if I'm allowed to continue on this path. Thank you, Dad. 
for intercepting this trajectory of stupidity in which I have set myself. I now understand that I am being redirected to a better, more peaceful place. So through these tears, I thank you. Anybody ever had anything like that? <laughs> Never going to happen. Why? Because, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, knowing why God is doing it makes a great deal of difference. I have a dear friend who got the fearful diagnosis of cancer. And he and his family rallied together and they prayed hard and they worked hard and he insisted and God in his grace worked everything together as complicated as insurance and everything is can be with the doctor's schedule. He insisted and asked and pleaded and fought to go through painful, delicate cancer surgery as soon as possible, before the end of the year. Now, why in the world would a man fight for surgery? Why would he want it done quickly? Because he knows if this continues, if it gets caught up in bureaucracy and it goes on for weeks and weeks, it's worse and worse. When you're under God's hand of correction, you will always be in His hands of love. But when that loving hand turns to correct you, remember at that moment what He has in mind. You won't like it, but He will do it for your good. And number seven, His discipline is intended to make who you are and what you do more like Him. He wants you to share His holiness and he wants you to enjoy a fruit of righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. So in other words, he wants to change you on the inside, your character, and he is also at work to change the outside, your behavior, so that someday, later, not in the moment of training, which you'll hate, and it may make you question things about him and question his purpose and his wisdom, but if you go through with it, you'll at the end, be more like him and act more like him. In other words, he will give you through that training holiness and righteousness. The important thing is to learn. You see, God's a good teacher. I've had wonderful teachers and I've had dreadful teachers as well. Particularly in seminary, I had some of those gifted, godly, kind-hearted transparently Christ-like men and women teach me things about God that still make an impact today. I also had a few people who were, had no business in the teaching profession. In fourth grade, I had a guy who loved to throw erasers. He fancied himself a pitcher with a good pickoff move to second. He'd lose his temper. I got to realize what he was and what, how volatile he could be, and he would his right shoulder would twitch a little bit, and what that meant is here comes an eraser, a wooden eraser flying into a crowd of fourth grade kids. No business teaching. Your heavenly father is a perfect father. He's the best teacher that ever lived, and here's what good teachers do. They teach, and after they teach, what do good teachers do? First comes the training, and then comes what? The test. 
And you'll evaluate, a good teacher will evaluate what the person has learned. He's aiming at character and skill. He's aiming at a better person and a more skilled person. Now, should students fail that test, what will a good teacher do? They'll go right back and teach it again. Try it a different way. Give them a little time to rest and recover and then reteach. And after the reteach comes what? The retest. Some of you won't grow spiritually because you're stuck on a treadmill of disobedience. And God is continually teaching and testing the same thing time and time again, but just like a good teacher who follows scope and sequence, he won't move ahead until the first lessons are learned. He won't. He knows exactly the kind of person Jesus died to make you. He refuses to leave you alone until you yield and become more like the person that Jesus is and died so that you could be. So please, if I could be very practical, one of the phrases in our house is, my boys and I, mother has no part in this, she would never say such a thing, but we sometimes say, you know, don't double down on stupid, okay? If it's not working, if you're running into correction, don't continue because God is immobile. He's unchanging on these things. He will continue because He has your good in mind and He wants you to be more like Him. He will give up makeup tests. He won't kick you out of the family. He'll keep working with you until He finally calls you to glory and all the lessons in that moment will be fully realized. For now, the degree in which you share His holiness and the harvest, the peaceful fruit of righteousness that you create in your life has a great deal to do with how much you cooperate with your Heavenly Father. This is the time of year where everybody makes resolutions. And I look back at some of mine and they're almost untouched. And basically move that over from last year. Does this sound familiar to anybody else? In the spiritual world, don't get stuck there. Your Heavenly Father really does know the end of the course. He knows what glory is. He knows what your character transformed by His holiness can look like. He knows what kind of harvest, what kind of life He can produce in you. If you will yield, if you will cooperate, it's your best move. And finally, we're told in verse 12, I'm not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, nobody knows for certain, but based on these next two verses, he might have coached football. It's a joke, there was no football in the first century, but listen to, listen to how football coach like this sounds, even in the language of first century Greek. Therefore, in other words, here's the point, here's what I'm building to. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be what? Healed. Doesn't that sound like buck up? Hey, get back into it. Pick your head up. Look up. Straighten up. God wants you to take a fresh grip. He wants you to get back on the path. This thing of discipline is painful. But what you're being told here in verse 12 and 13 is this. If you stick with it, you'll come out stronger. Another great Puritan, William Gurnall, wrote, God's wounds cure. Sin's kisses kill. 
Before this service, I prayed with a person who the specific prayer was that they would not go back to the life they used to run to before they met Jesus. What a great prayer. What a great desire. I've been in that life. I know what it leads to. I know the hangover that it leads me with. I know the consequences of it, but I know I'm going to be tempted again, and I'm going to be tempted to run right back to the same old foolishness that hurt so much before I met the Savior. Now you're being told at the end of this verse, if you're in that condition, discipline hurts. It may make your hands tired. It may make your knees feel weak. Stand up straight. Get a fresh grip because what God intends is not to destroy you, not to put you out of joint. What he's working on is your healing. God knows exactly the person that Jesus died to make you. And the process, if you want a biblical term, The theological term, the process of sanctification is that process whereby you grow gradually into the person that Jesus died for you to be. And the measure in which you share God's holiness and your good deeds produce and have the signature of the righteousness of God has everything to do with how much you cooperate. If you stick with it, number eight, If you stick with it, you'll come out stronger, Christian. So what does this mean in 2018? Going, man, this is a tough sermon to end the year. I know, right? Typically, it's more motivational, right? Well, please come back next year. That's next week. (laughs) Why this sermon? Well, on a personal side, it's some of the things that God has been teaching me. Not only recently, but for a very long time. I can look back at whole sections of my life where I got stuck on that treadmill of disobedience and having clear guidance and clear instruction from the Lord, I continued to insist that I knew better, and there I stayed. I didn't grow, I didn't change, no one was blessed in that area of my life because I was stubborn. May I invite you not to make those mistakes? To start walking with God and not confuse him with your earthly father who did the best he could and did what he thought was best but I'm sure hurt you at various points. The process will be painful but your heavenly father will never harm you because all he has for you is love. He won't treat you like a convict. His intent is not to punish and to intimidate and to make you cower in fear. His Father's heart is to bring you closer through both blessing and pain, through both the good times and the hard times, to bring you closer to His heart, to cause you to love Him, and to discover as you continue to trust Him, keeping your eyes on Jesus, you'll be reminded that your Father loves you in this way, and He loves you so much that He will not leave you alone until you're the person that Jesus died for you to become. If you become that person, if you take steps in that direction, your life will change and everyone in your world will be better for it. Not everyone will appreciate it. Remember, this passage says that Jesus himself endured hostility from sinners. Not everyone will appreciate what God is doing in your life, but you will be a light, you will be a guide, you will be a witness, you will love everyone in your life, and they will all be blessed by it, whether they're, well, they're able to receive it or not. 
So all this year, through his word and through prayer, God will speak to you and you will speak back to him. When you stray from the path and God in love reaches out to correct you, come back quickly and say, Father, I understand. Teach me a better way. Make me more like you. If you stick with it, you'll be stronger because all of the things you said earlier, up to and including God loved because God loves me, he will discipline you. They're all true and they're all part of his plan for you. Let's pray together, please. Christian, I just want to give you a moment, if you know Christ, to go to the Lord. I don't know what kind of season you're in. There's far too many people here on the weekend for me to know every story. But if you're in the Father's hands of love and you're only receiving mercy and grace and blessing, I'm delighted for that. Thank Him. If you're in His same loving hands, but you're going through a season of correction, He's pulled you aside and He's coaching. He's rebuking. He's telling you you're doing it wrong. Could I invite you not to stiffen up? Not to double down, but to say, Lord, give me grace to hear you right now and get right back in step with you. Make me share your holiness. Begin a work in me that will produce a harvest of righteousness so that I can have the life and live the life that would be pleasing to you, the life you had in mind when Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've been on the fence, if you're just trying to figure all these things out, listen, that's the good news. Jesus died for you. For your sins. He had none of his own. He died for our sins. If you've never trusted him as Savior, maybe he's calling you this morning to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm turning around. I'm turning my back on myself. I'm turning my back on my sin and I'm coming home to you. Take me, Lord, as your child. Forgive my sins. Give me that life. Give me your holiness. Give me your righteousness. Be my Father so I may live forever. If you turn to Jesus this morning, all I ask is that you'll take the card in your bulletin. Let us know. We'll be in touch. We want to help you take those first steps. But if, as it also says in this book of Hebrews, if you hear his voice today, don't turn away. Don't turn a deaf ear. Don't give him a hard heart. Turn to him. Receive life. Walk in his discipline. Walk in his love. Walk in his instruction. And live. Lord, that's our, that's our best and only hope that we would keep in step with you and live and enjoy the life that you, eternal life, died to give us. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with you, they're fighting you. There, as I have so many times, too many times, they are continuing to prefer their own way, soften their heart, turn them back to you. Lord, these offerings that we give, they come from grateful hearts. You taught us to give. You give things to us so that we can be generous in return. They're not an effort to repay. They're an effort to obey. 
So receive these offerings, and if someone here, Lord, needs you as Savior, I pray that by your great grace you would reach down and save them now as they place their trust in you. Receive this, this worship, this praise, these offerings, and make us, Lord, into the sons and daughters you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.